Hello and welcome to the next episode of Planet Centred Care, a podcast about sustainable healthcare from the BMJ. My name's Florence Webmore, I'm the BMJ Sustainability Fellow, I'm in a medical registrar in London and I'm joined by my co-host Lauren. Hi everyone, it's great to be here again. I'm Lauren DeFreitas, a freelance clinical editor in the education section of the BMG and a medical doctor based in Trinidad and Tobago. Nice to be here again with you, Lauren. Um, so when I first started thinking about this episode, I really wanted to come with the lines of like, there's lots and lots of things that we can do that are more sustainable healthcare, but also are better for the patients. And, and we heard a bit of that in our um, last episode with the, the gloves off stuff. Um, and it's a little bit our, like our title as well, planet-centred care, patient-centred care. But actually, as we started reaching out to guests and, and kind of talking through this, we also kind of realised that there's another way that we're bringing patients into this. Isn't this about, about kind of how we're involving patients um, in changes? Um, and I think this is something that I've really got from spending some time at the BMJ. Um, it's really infused in me about how important kind of patient involvement in, in any change we're having. Um, I don't know what your experience of this is like, Lauren, or also, you know, other experiences outside of um, the BMJ. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think the BMJ has a really good um, strategy for involving patients um, in the work that we do. Um, And I think bringing that patient perspective really adds another dimension to the topics that we cover. So it's it's really great um, to be involved in that and to learn about that and to have the patient involvement. Um, The other aspect is patient and public involvement in research, which I know is pretty common in, in the UK. Um, and it's something that I'm trying to do in, with my own research locally here in Trinidad. Um, but it can be challenging, you know, just trying to figure out how to get patients involved um, and, and to get people to understand why it's important to have patients involved in the work that we do. Um, so, I, and I think that's, that's really what's going to be interesting about our conversation today as well and, and relating that to sustainable healthcare. And we really noticed, I think, or I've noticed at least, that maybe because this kind of sustainable healthcare stuff is new, that patients have been a little bit left out sometimes, and, and that that's a kind of, well, there's lots of reasons we can talk about that, but, it, but you know, there's issues with that as well. Um, so that I think those will all kind of come up in our conversation today. Great. So I am really excited to introduce our guests for today's episode. We have three really interesting um, perspectives and we're going to ask each one of them to tell us who they are, where they work and a little bit about their story. So let's start with Anna. Hi, my name's Anna Moore. I'm a respiratory doctor in the Breathlessness Clinic at at Bart's Health. um, And I'm here to talk about the Singing for Breathing project, which we set up in 2017. Yeah, I'm Stephen Harley, retired patient contributor and uh, patient at St Bart's, representing my group for the Singing for Breathing. It's because of my eosinophilic pneumonia, and then I've had the eosinophilic asthma over the last 23 years. Um, I'm Lynn Riddell, I'm a consultant in the NHS, and I run an HIV service countywide across Northamptonshire. And I'm here today to talk about um, a change in a clinical pathway um, to benefit patients and the environment at the same time. That's fantastic. We're definitely looking forward to hearing more um, about the work that you have been doing as well. Um, Anna, can you tell us a little bit more about the Singing for Breathing project? 
um, how that's connected to sustainable healthcare because um, it may not be immediately um, obvious how, how it is connected. I absolutely had not made that connection um, when it first when I first set it up. It was not about sustainability. And I've always been interested in kind of climate change and kind of worrying about it and thinking about living sustainably. But I think um, like many clinicians hadn't linked it particularly with what we do in when we're doing day-to-day healthcare, I hadn't really made that link. And I certainly hadn't when I'd set it up in 2017. Um, so about six months in, um, we did a focus group, which I, I, one of the um, researchers at QMUL helped me with. It was brilliant. And people were saying, do you know what? When I um, feel breathless now, instead of using my inhaler, I do my singing exercises. And I was thinking, that I wasn't expecting that. That's really interesting. That was a very kind of like, and, it, and people were kind of nodding around the circle saying, yeah, that's definitely, I, I, I find that I'm doing that. Uh, and then my colleague, Hannah Hilton, who's a highly specialist um, physiotherapist um, for the respiratory department, came and visited us um, about a year in and said, this is physio. They're doing physio. They're doing what, what we want them to be doing, but they're actually doing it and they're not having to think about it. Um, and so I kind of started to dawn on me that this is a way of staying well. Um, and it certainly is a way of being connected. And we know that when people are disconnected and socially isolated, they're much more likely to go into hospital and and, and to become unwell. Um, and it's also quite like at the top of it, it's a way of um, being able to manage your own breathlessness. It gives gives mastery over, over that feeling, that panic of breathlessness. And one other option, you know, you've got your inhaler, you might use your inhaler. That's a thing you are doing to manage your breathlessness and to give yourself some relief. Um, and in uh, breathlessness management, particularly for kind of end stage um, problems, we, we offer a, a fan, a handheld fan, which is just supposed to be kind of physiologically cool it cooling of the kind of nerves in the face which can would kind of attenuate that feeling of breathlessness and all of those th- those three things are about having something that you can do within yourself that helps you manage your breathlessness but the thing with singing is that if you're doing it regularly you are changing the pattern of how you breathe so you're using your diaphragm and that's the aim of what we're doing when we're kind of doing breathlessness management we're just like normalizing a much healthier breathing pattern and it's no accident with singing for breathing singing for breathing is not um a sing-along session and and that was another thing that came out of this focus group this is not we're not don't pat us on the head don't patronize us we're not just singing along to a tape this is not oldie timey like wartime songs that's not what we're doing here we are doing physical activity we're doing exercise and we're learning we're really relearning how to use our breath it just so happens that that's the most joyful thing to do and that we have friends here and that we can talk about our, our separate situations and we can get support from each other and we can share ideas but we're doing something that's that's therapeutic and it's really really serious and they sound incredible um so before we get into more in depth about the singing for breathing project then let's hear a little clip of your group in action Mr. So, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in Singing for Breathing? I stumbled across um, Singing for Breathing um, quite by chance, actually, at one of my appointments at St. Bart's when uh, I mentioned to the... Um, the specialist uh, physio there that uh, she was asking me about my the weakness in my voice, which you may be able to hear now. And I said I was getting rather concerned about this and uh, it just came as a sort of um, 
a throw in. She said, well, there's this um, charitable organisation which is um, sponsored by uh, the Royal London Hospital and um, also um, St Bartholomew's. How would you like to be referred to that? And I'd never sung publicly before, but I'd, I thought I'd do anything for the... For you know, to get this voice up to a, being very interested in music and singing to myself, but never publicly. You know, my attendance is at um, a weekly, either virtual or uh, um, live sessions. I look forward to now. I cancel other things just to go to that because it brings great joy. Um, you don't have to sing in tune. That's one thing they made clear. The other thing they made clear is you were not a choir, as Anna referred to. Um, there's a professional coach there that takes us through these uh, songs that are aimed at getting everything down the throat working. Um, and uh, it's early days for me yet, but I'm, I'm really, you know, up, up for this because um, together with some of these, I've got a huge pack of drugs here, which I won't embarrass myself by showing you that's related to my asthma condition. Um, the singing for breathing sessions, I, first class, really. Thanks, Stephen. That's that's really fantastic to hear your perspective, hearing the patient's perspective um, about using the singing for breathing method. Um, so, Lynn, could you tell us a bit more about your project where you're working and, and maybe a bit about its sustainability benefits as well? So what we wanted to do was... Um, from a sustainable point of view, but also financial point of view and for the pressures on the staff, what we wanted to do was reduce, see if we could safely reduce the number of times that people came up every year for routine blood tests for HIV. So that was the starting point. So we, we had the advantage of having had the hospital locked down during COVID and we hadn't been able to see people and do things. So we'd been monitoring them at a distance and we would had to go through each person and say, do we really need to have another blood test when this person's been stable for 15 years? Or can we just give them another prescription? So we did have some background supporting safety netting. And then we looked to say, well, what would happen if we saw them, if they were stable and we had to define what stable meant, very stable meant, what would, what would happen if we breached the, the national guideline and said, well, actually, we don't need to see these people every six months. This very highly defined group, can we see them every year? And what would they think about that? Because quite a lot of the staff said, oh, they'd hate it. You know, they love coming in to see us and, you know, they feel safe because they, they can talk about their children and all of that. Yeah, yeah, they probably do love that, but they, they might want to be happy to do that on the phone. So, so that's why we asked them. You know, we asked them, how do you come in? You know, do you drive, do you petrol, diesel, how far, how many hours? And then the big thing we asked them was, when you come to your appointment, not only how long does it take, there and back. But do you have to take time off work? Do you get paid? Are you taking it as annual leave? Are you taking it as sick leave? And that was shocking. And then the key question was, you know, we asked a whole lot of questions. And then the key question was, if we could reduce the number of times you have to attend for routine appointments, but still have an emergency access system when you need it, would you like us to do that? And over 90% said yes. And that was the shocking thing. So all the rest was the environmental stuff for how much we would save and how much money they would save and how much time they would save. But that was the key question. And we estimated we could put probably 700 patients onto the system. We now think it's closer to 1,100. But even with 700, 
it saved just making that simple change saved forty five thousand pounds um, from consumables. So that was actually in money in terms of how much it cost for needles, syringes, etc. It was equivalent to a hundred and ten return trips from Northampton to Glasgow. That's a long way. So Northampton to Glasgow and back, that was the carbon dioxide saving. And it was equivalent to 350 nurse hours saved just by doing that. And so to me, so that's all the sustainability, but I I want to see what the patients say, because that's to me what it's all about. Because if we want to design services for patients, how can we think about designing services for patients without involving patients? And we need to know what's hard for them, what's easy for them, what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, they're all different. So you need to do what's right for the majority, but then also have a system for for those that that's not going to work for, like the people who can't use the phone or, you know, whatever you're going to do, you you need to think of them all. Because in the end, they all each a person. And for me, the big driver was, for, for those of you who are familiar with HIV, it's absolutely imperative that people take their medication. That's the difference between whether they're going to live probably a normal life expectancy or not. So that adherence is key. So we absolutely want our patients engaged. We absolutely want to make it easy and, you know, for them to come and to help those who can't. And what came out of that survey was a lot of reasons why people couldn't come or why they just cancelled at the last minute or just didn't attend. So it was, it, was in, it was the first survey I can say that in all the years I've worked in the NHS, which where I actually thought we got really useful answers. Lynn, can I ask, have you now said to patients, this is a sustainability move? Have you linked it? Have you kind of talked about it with with them? Because I, so much of I think what we do in terms of sustainable healthcare is, is not necess- It's not obviously to do with carbon, but it is to do with improving care, and it happens that it reduces our our environmental impact. So the answer to that is no, and I'll, I'll tell you why. It's because um, it's it's been a big change for them, and it's been a big change for the staff. But I just thought it was just too much information at one go in half an hour when we're changing a whole system. And I just wanted to make them confident and get it right. Yeah, because I, when, I, when I'm talking with people in the breathlessness clinic, obviously I, I look at switching inhalers. So we would all need to be moving away from um, meter dose inhalers and towards dry powder inhalers. And I usually talk about, and obviously this, this is relevant for singing as well, because I say, well, if you're using less of your inhaler because you're managing your breathlessness with breathing pattern rather than uh, with an inhaler, which is actually often not the problem, right? The inhaler is, the inhaler treats bronchoconstriction. Um, but that's not always a cause of breathlessness. So that's the answer to why singing for breathing is good for the planet, right? Um, but when I switch inhalers, I say a lot of people actually don't know how to use an MDI inhaler, a meter dose inhaler. They use it wrong. Um, and actually, that means it's not going in. It's not doing the job. Um, and actually, if you use a dry powder inhaler, those are because they're easier to use, it's more likely that the drug gets to the place it needs to be and will actually treat your asthma better. And I've had a patient come back and say, my asthma is so much better since you switched me to that other inhaler. Um, secondarily, I will, because I think it's really important to start raising awareness of climate among our patients. I will say, actually, as it happens, this is also much, much better for the climate because... Um, 
and explain why. Um, because it applies to lots of different things as well. It applies to diet, it applies to travel. Um, I'm talking about air pollution. You know, there's lots of kind of ways in which we can kind of start having these conversations. But but primarily, it's about it's better care for your for your patient in front of you. And then secondarily, it's good good for our planet which later on in that point is kind of difficult to start explaining because you know you have to you get into kind of heat waves and all that kind of thing and, and some people are receptive to it people, some people go yeah clearly right great yeah i'm up for it and some people are like yeah whatever's good for the planet that's great I'm, i'll do that and i don't need to discuss it any further and some people i just think i don't need to talk about this with you with you right now this is not less not relevant to your care so yeah it's, it's an interesting kind of where do you put that balance and i suppose at a service level is different from clinical the, the HIV patients, historically, of, we've made them very dependent on us. And they were very dependent on us before they were really good antiretrovirals. You know, we'd see people two weeks, four weeks. We knew we were going to lose them to infections. So people were very dependent. And so there is a security in coming to see us. And it's about changing that perception now that actually you're all right. As long as you take your medication, because these medications are fantastic, you're all right. And so for me, that's the first step, was to give them the security. And that's why I said to this in that question, provided we give you emergency access, would you be happy for us to reduce your attendance? So when they come back and I say, have you been fine this year? Yeah, I've been fine. It's great. You know, da 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 When, if and when they say that, then you can say, well, the big advantage, you've told me the advantages for you, the advantages for us are A, B and C. Our nurses have had more time to spend with people who are sick, but also, and that's where we would bring up the, you know, have you, have you thought what this would do for the environment? Because the savings were massive. You know, the CO2 savings were massive and the consumable savings are obviously huge if you're not doing bloods. I think what we've brought out kind of, Maybe accidentally is that um, you mentioned the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare, Lynn, and and they have these kind of principles of how we practice sustainable healthcare, and one of them is patient empowerment because, you know, if people feel empowered to to manage their own care, that's obviously better for them because they're not having to rely on you, but actually also means we're using less healthcare and so on. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is just how so I, we've tried to divide this this podcast series up into different episodes focusing on different themes but it's obviously completely artificial because there's so many things coming out that we we've discussed last week and in the you know we're going to have a an episode where we do kind of look you know delve into a little bit more about kind of how we how we bring this into consultations with patients and you know when and how and the sort of appropriateness of it um and so I think just on that note, I, I, it'd be really interesting, Stephen, to hear your perspective on on this. You know, has anyone ever spoken to you about it? And, you know, how how do you feel about uh, about hearing the, what sort of Anna and, and Lynn have been saying? Yes, I mean, Anna did enlighten me and I've done some reading on this since because it's not really advertised, is it? You're, you're, given, you're issued with drugs and stuff and you think, oh, that's good. It either works or it doesn't. So they've tried throwing everything at me you know, to try and including these um, planet damaging um, inhalers. Um, I've not seen anything advertised for a powder based thing. It's never discussed in surgery or at the hospitals. It's not marketed, not in my world anyway. Uh, if it was, I'd give it a, a good try. It's very boring to take a whole load of tablets night and day. You miss the odd one and you feel extremely guilty about it. And then it's a fight really I, I i go to uh to the gym and exercise as a 68 year old um play a bit of football now and uh still believe it or not a bit of tai chi You're, i'm doing out things and i'm listening to my body i'm not relying totally on medication that's just shoved at me 
and I, and I would dearly love to get down to a program with some allied to uh, you know um, singing for breathing with drugs that are not planet damaging. I think that would be a real a real good move forward. Um, one of the things, the technicalities with spacers that we use, I don't know if this is relevant or not. I told that there's the spacers, it's a not fit all situation. So um, how can I put this? An inhaler comes onto the market, but it won't fit the aperture, whether it's powdered or unpowdered. It's That needs to be looked at, I think, in the medical profession. A, a fits all device that goes into that spacer, otherwise you've just got to take it manually. And, you know, as you know, it's far more effective in the mouth fire of spacer than it is uh, just using it. But that's just my own perspective. That wasn't something I knew about. And it, uh, again, just to overhash the linking back to our previous episode, you know, we talked about how different people have different perspectives and there'll be something that, you know, someone will notice that no one else will have seen. And, and it's like, how do we empower people to then say, hang on a second, did you know? you know, not all of these fit together. Surely there must be a way that we could do something differently. So Lynn, I'm aware of, there's an, one of the HIV, well, infectious disease clinics at a rural hospital here in Trinidad. They primarily deal with HIV patients and they're actually doing something similar to what you were doing. Um, and it, it's sort of the same concept, but it was born out of necessity because of the pandemic. Um, they do it slightly differently where they'll screen the patients a week in advance and bring back those who need to come back and the rest can just pick up their prescriptions. Um, but one of the things that, that you mentioned, you brought up the word safe and safety and in relevance to, the, to your national guidelines. So I'm just wondering how, how did that go over with your colleagues and, and, and patients? Because you did mention that it's not quite following the guidelines if you don't bring them back for six months. Okay, so, so basically... I moved into this area from other hospitals in 2000, end of 2001. And I can look back on my electronic records and see that when, these, when patients started on these antiretroviral medications, they've been completely controlled. Their viral load's been completely controlled for 15 to 20 years. So I knew that there, there are a lot of people who, who don't want to go against guidelines. To me, guidelines are guidelines. You know, the, the clue is in the, in the term. And so we had the advantage of looking over the pandemic. So we have a hub within another acute hospital trust. And that acute hospital locked the doors with the pandemic. So we couldn't bring anyone up anyway. So we had to look through each patient that we were meant to be seeing and go, do they need more medication? What do we need to do? And before making a decision, oh, yes, but we're going to do their bloods before we do give them more medication, we had to go, right, are we going to bring that patient in to a hospital where people are dying from COVID because that was before the vaccination? Or are we going to say they've been stable for 10, 15 years? We can, we can go another six months. And that's what we did. So I had the advantage of looking back at that data. But then the, the, the thing that gave me the mandate to make the change was the patient voice. The patients were saying, please, we want you to only see us this often. We love you dearly and we love bringing you chocolates and all the wonderful things they do. But actually, we, we need to get on with our lives. And there was quite a big voice from people who had to take unpaid leave to come in. And uh, we have a lot of people who are on zero hours contracts. And so they, if, they don't, if they get a phone call at 10 o'clock at night saying be somewhere at 6 o'clock in the morning and they're not there, they don't get paid. They don't have money. 
So there was quite a strong voice. So with those two together and the need for us to save money on consumables, you know, not even about the environment at this stage, I went to my colleagues and said, look, this is what I want to do. Will you back me? And they were like, yeah. Um, and it'll be very interesting when we do the data to see if we, if we made a mistake with anybody, you know, if this person shouldn't have gone in and why. Why shouldn't they have gone in? You know, that sort of thing. So it's all a bit of learn, but we keep a very close eye on it. And also the other thing, to be very clear, we've got a very good safety netting system. So our patients are scheduled, you know, for six-month contact. So they're either coming in to see us for the annual review and then six months later they're having a pharmacy contact, six months later an annual review. But they know at any time they can phone us because that's the way our clinic has always worked. They will phone up and go, you know, I can't get my coil out, or I can't do this, and we'll say, do this, do that. So, so there is a very tight safety net anyway, but they, we have that, that's not new. We've always had that. Well, I was just, I was just really interested in what you were saying, Lynn, that um, it goes back to this this history of this is how we used to do HIV so that's how we still do HIV um, and I think that applies to a lot of areas in healthcare we we uh, we prescribe a blue inhaler because that's how we treat asthma and that's the kind of cultural understanding of um, among healthcare professionals as well as patients um, and that's something that that kind of really needs to be challenged and with singing for breathing we don't refer to singing for breathing because that's not medicine right so, and yeah I've got I mean I I, I invited Stephen before you joined it was it was before the um before the pandemic i invited uh the the whole group in to speak at our clinical governance meeting and the the group came in and did a session we actually didn't have the leader but we had something they came in and did a session they said this is amazing we love this we've helped it helps us manage our our breathlessness um look how how great it all is did i get any more referrals from the consultant body i i i it's so difficult to change behaviors yeah, I think that's really interesting because I gave a talk to the other consultants in my trust. So my, my trust is a, a massive community trust. So we have all the mental health services, but we have physio, dietetics, us, podiatry, all that sort of stuff. And so it's separate from the two acute trusts. And I gave a talk and they just looked at me like, what? I mean, it was really interesting. And I, I ended by saying, we, the NHS runs on habits. And they were appropriate. These habits were appropriate in 2004 and five. They are not appropriate now. We should be looking at every habit, how we take blood, how we do phlebotomy, how we manage, you know, all the other conditions that come into outpatient services. And that's why this project to me was, was great because it is translatable across, you know, rheumatology, dermatology, all of those things that just routinely call people in. And I said to our psychiatrists, because most of the other consultants in our trust are psychiatrists, I said to them, you know, the one thing you have to be really careful of when you change a pathway is the first thing is obviously, do the patients want it and is it safe? You know, that goes without saying. But the third thing is, is your trust going to approve it? Because if you are being paid on attendance, so you payment by results, they're not going to want you to change that because you're going to bring in less money. Whereas we're on a block contract, so they... They don't mind. But if we, we used to be on payment by results. So, so there are lots of reasons why pathways are not changed, but they're not good reasons 
But to me, it's about habits. We need to look at all of these habits. And I think what you said that's just really plonked me in the face, Anna, is because it's not deemed medicine, somehow it's less important. I mean, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) Because it's helping patients. Is that not medicine? Absolutely. And so the number of people in secondary care who have never heard of the term social prescribing, I've lost count of, um, because we're not, because it's not part of our normal uh, way of doing things. And the first thing I did when I started coming to the the breathlessness clinic, having had a, a bit of time out of medicine, having done some education, was just referring to social prescribing. I was like, these people, this this is a social problem for these people. That's what's going on here. This is not to do with that they're, they're taking, they may or may not be taking their medicines, but us throwing more medicines at these people is not going to help. The root problem is with what's happening outside the hospital. Um, and I think that's another kind of habit that people need to get into. We need to start looking, and this is patient empowerment. This is big time. We start looking at the what is going on. Why, why is it that these people are ill? It's not because... Um, there's some kind of pathology going on that we can fix with a drug like often if if there's problems with um concordance with inhaler treatment that's to do with social issues or as you say the attendance at um at appointments someone was talking about um looking at the oxford university hospital's um pediatric uh, did not, was not brought rates and they go they start off great they start off everybody comes to their appointments and then towards the end of the month the uh, the attendance drops off and it goes like this sawtooth pattern because people are running out of money they can't bring their children because they get they get paid at the end of the month they haven't got money to bring their appointments so that's an appointment lost that is unbelievably inefficient healthcare but it's not just an appointment loss it's also treatment lost so that child is going to have further problems with their health because they're not being brought to the to the the place where they need to go so we need to look at the root cause of the problem we need to understand the context of people's lives and I think for me singing for breathing has done that because I've got to know people as people it's it's completely revolutionized my kind of whole approach to what I what my job is in clinic is to get to know these people and it's amazing I, I meet people in clinic um quite often I'm hoping this will happen with us Stephen I'll meet people no no I don't I'm not going to meet you in clinic I hope that it doesn't I hope that doesn't happen um, but when I do meet people in the clinic and I refer them to singing for breathing yeah then I meet them and we we have a good time together. We do some singing together and we laugh together and it's a completely different experience, but we don't like our systems are not set up to see people as people. And that for me is like the antithesis of sustainable healthcare and, and antithesis of patient-centered care. And just for our, for our listeners who maybe haven't, you know, are slightly less enlightened, can you just give us a very quick explanation of what social prescribing is? The, the key kind of way of describing social prescribing is it's not about what is the matter with you it's about what matters to you and that's the kind of like completely twi- like flipped um, context in which people are being seen so there's lots of ways in which it works so singing for breathing is social prescribing right uh, maybe if Lynn had a patient who said no I can't afford to come to my appointment and you said okay let me sort you out with someone who can help you with your benefits um, that would be social prescribing so we can do social prescribing but there are also thing, people called social prescribing link workers who are trained health professionals who have um, time in their job plans to sit with patients and get to know them in the way that we've just described so if I've got someone who I think I can't handle their housing. I They seem really socially isolated, but I can't go into that now. I can't work out what's going on. They live in an area that I'm not aware of what's available. I will say to the GP, um, 
dear doctor, please could you consider referring to social prescribing in order to address these issues? Um, and it's very, I think it's quite important that you say to people it's not social work, it's not social services, it's social prescribing, it's a very different thing. But it does that thing of kind of understanding the context in which people work and it's pound for pound really worth doing. Lovely, thank you. And just for a final question for Stephen, um, you know, you've heard this whole conversation and I just think if, you know, if you had one advice for, for we're going to have lots of clinicians listening to this podcast, um, you know, for for really involving patients and, and for hearing from you, what what advice would you give them if if they're starting out on this? One of the key things I would say was, is that you see different leaflets plastered around every doctor's surgery, but it's nothing that hones in on what we do at Singing for Breathing. As a marketing exercise in itself, that would be great to say problems with lung or breathing, come and see us um, that, as an introduction, because it's not, you know, maybe there isn't funding to advertise it. Stephen, can I ask, how would you like your clinicians to behave around singing for breathing? I'd like them to be more um, upfront about what they're issuing me with and why they've drawn, withdrawn certain treatments um, rather than say, well, try these. Um, and then you go back and say, well, not really effective. I will stop them then. Then there's a break in time, no communication. Then you're called in and then you have to explain what's wrong with you, as you said earlier. You have to tell them because they, they, you know, fair play to them. They won't necessarily know in the way we describe things as patients to the technical side of things that the, the medical profession understand. So there's, um, yeah, I mean, doctors can't... They can't be specialists in everything, and that's that's understood. And there's a lot out there that if they would own up to and say, well, we simply don't know. There's an embarrassment of saying, what can I do next about my breathing? Well, we don't know. We've tried everything else. Well, that's just part of, part of the course. But as things go on and things are developed, you know, lowers the carbon footprint. And I think patients generally would get behind that because they're unaware of what they're taking into their body, let alone what it's doing to the planet. So... Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Stephen, for that. So a similar question to Lynn and Anna. So if you had one, one piece of advice for our listeners about how to involve patients in their own work, um, what would it be? So let's start with Lynn. I'd, I'd like to think that I would take the time to really listen and that's not the same as hearing, is it? So I, I think we should be saying to patients, if you tell me what's difficult for you, I can see if I can help you in every consultation. How you ask that question is going to be different for different patients. But we don't do that. We go, are you well? Yes, I'm well. Fine. Okay, let's have some more medicines. But actually, we should take the time and we should we should demand from our services and our trust that we are given that time to speak to people because in the end it'll cost the nhs less if people don't have to come in more often and in my case if their viral load is under control so i should be doing everything and i think it's it's asking and fighting to get proper proper measuring tools in you know i want great care it doesn't work for me but so why am i filling it in all the time and we have to it's mandatory but, you know, like it's, it's getting people to really ask questions. And I think we need people to help us design proper questionnaires. Okay, um, great. And Anna? I would be um, I'd urge people to use the time that they're going to get when Lynn is in charge of the NHS and gives everybody half hour appointments um, to, or even, even in the time that you've got to think about why is your patient 
in here why is your patient in front of you um because once you start thinking why they're here not just well they've got asthma so i need to give them drugs then you're starting to think actually okay so why what's setting off their asthma when we 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 ask about triggers but we don't really ask about triggers we kind of like for example with asthma but but with copd with heart disease what's what's the cause of this this problem and what's the cause of that cause so think further back so that you can start to address the problem where it actually is um, and so much of what I'm doing in the breathlessness clinic is going okay so no let's just work out why why this is happening and then you can solve the problem because otherwise you're just throwing drugs at it and you're and you're kind of throwing drugs at it in order to maintain the status quo and as we talked about the status quo is not always <laughs> where we really want to be especially not if we want to sort out climate change. <laughs> okay, um, that's that's really great um, information from everybody today. And thanks a lot to everyone. I think we do have to wrap up now. Um, so, so Flo, I've, I've really enjoyed um, today's episode and a whole lot of really rich information has come out from all of our guests. I think my one takeaway from all of this is that we really need to put the patient's voice at the center of everything that we do um, and rethinking our clinical care pathways um, probably is one of the the approaches that we should start looking at but from that patient perspective and putting that patient's um, voice in the center of of our redesign of of clinical care pathways Um, what about you any takeaways from today yeah, totally. That sort of asking why again, isn't it? It's like the, the I mean, it, <laughs> literally repeating of, of what we talked about in the last episode, but you know, like questioning why do we do something? You know, is it just because it's it's habit or, you know, is there evidence we can change stuff? And then I think the other thing is is a bit of joy, like just hearing Stephen's experience of, of um, joining this group and how like, where can we find the joy? Um, and yeah, so I think those are probably my takeaways from today. So, so thanks again to everyone for joining us today and thanks to our listening audience um, for attending our episode of Planet Centered Care, the BMJ's podcast on sustainable healthcare. Please look out for our future episodes and don't forget to check out our climate-related content on the BMJ's website. Um, we also have the NHS Net Zero Clinical Care Conference coming up in October and you can register online for that if you want to attend. Um, So thanks again, everyone, and we look forward to seeing everyone next time for our next episode.